Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Feels like I just we're inseparable these days. We we've seen each other, I think, more days this week than we haven't. Than we've seen our wives. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, it's like the old um, Charles and Diana thing, isn't it? There are three, indeed, three indeed. of us in this marriage, at least. This week we're talking about the NHS. I'm I'm from a big NHS family. Right. My mum is from a family of twelve brothers and sisters. Wow, I uh, didn't know that. Seven sisters, and all the sisters went into nursing. How amazing. So a lot of people are sort of phobic around hospitals, whereas for me, I get almost like a Proustian rush. When we were little kids, I used to always be like going to see my mum in the hospital and I would... um I'd get like the perks of my mum's job. Were all the sisters in the same hospital? No. Uh, ap- apart from one. Yeah, they were all in Macclesfield Hospital, apart from Auntie Mary. So, how many of them? So, how many was it? Six working in one hospital? Uh, yeah. How amazing. Yeah, I know. I know. All, not in the same department. No, no. They're all on different wards. But all nurses? Yes. Amazing. Yeah. So, my mum worked on coronary care. And do you remember the old heart meters? They used to draw a little graph on a roll of paper. So I used to get people's heart monitor printouts to colour in when they were done with. Wow. And I used to, my mum used to bring syringes home from work as well. Not the ones with the needles in them, but just the syringes and would use them as water pistols. It's funny because my aunt and uncle both went into medicine in different ways. My uncle was big in um, diabetes, research and consultant in diabetes. And uh, this is on my father's side. And my aunt, it's funny you should say this thing about ECGs because she... She became a sort of expert reader of ECGs, you know, electrocardiograms, and apparently there's a particular there was a particular skill involved in in sort of reading them. Really? Yeah, and there weren't that many people who did it. But we are talking about the NHS mm. this week. Um, it, it won't observe, have, have escaped people's notice that the NHS is is in a feels like it's in a real crisis. You've got the the sort of not just winter pressures but you know winter crisis operations cancelled massive pressure on A&Es uh, nurses who are leaving the profession and I, I think I don't think this is just a I think people from all parties have said this isn't just a normal you know normal this isn't just a sort of well this is what happens in a winter this is much more serious than that and I think it. You know, for me, it's not that mysterious. The NHS is 
had over the last six or seven years, it's it's kind of worst set of increases in terms of financial settlement about I think it's about one percent a year in real terms. And historically, it used it's, to be more like it's four. three or four, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I don't think it's that mysterious as to why it's happened. Um, we've also, I think it's fair to say, had quite a lot of messages from uh, junior doctors, nurses, others saying, please talk about the NHS. And I think, you know, I think we sort of owe it to to obviously the patients, but also to them to talk about this and, and uh, just to talk about well, what can be done. Um, and- so when we look for a reason to be cheerful, are we basically basically the answer is money so it's kind of figuring out how to get more funds to the nhs i think that's partly what we want to talk about today and i think i think it's important to what what we're going to do is we're going to get a view from the front line from dr hannah barham brown who's a junior doctor working in emergency medicine and in a way i think it's important to sort of you know get that sense of what's it what's it really like day to day at the moment and how is it different from before then we're going to be hearing from anita charlesworth who's the director of research and economics at the health foundation and they've currently just they've just started a review for the next 15 years about nhs funding which takes into account you know effectiveness productivity and all those things are so not just looking at money um but how can the nhs be reformed anita charlesworth used to work in the treasury so i i know her uh, reasonably well and and she worked on the uh, review that was called the Wanless review it was done by Derek Wanless in um the early 2000s and it recommended that Gordon Brown put a proposal forward to raise national insurance for the health service which he which he did so she's got bags of experience and then we'll be talking to somebody else who used to be in the treasury uh, and that's uh Nick McPherson Lord, now Lord McPherson former permanent secretary to the treasury he has he he um tweeted rather intriguingly the other day looking like he was in favor of what they call hypothecation of taxes for the nhs so that's that you have a particular tax which is a health tax right um devoted to the nhs that's and 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 is that like a way of establishing it in the minds of the public because like a lot of people don't want to link. pay more tax but people really value the nhs yeah and if they sort of thought okay well i'm now paying an nhs tax they they'd kind of under, understand it a bit i more. think that it well we'll talk to him about that and about what that why that might be a solution i think it's fair to say that the vast majority of national insurance your national insurance contributions already do go to the nhs um, and there is that link already there, but but we can, we'll talk to him about what his view is. The Treasury has been traditionally been very very skeptical about this so-called hypothecation. Why? I think probably because they feel they lose control um, because you know they can't decide where money goes. It's that that money's got to go to the health service, and you can see some downsides of it because when the economy turns downwards, you want the health service to be suddenly getting less money. So I'm not sure it's a simple answer, um, but but I think. You know, I think it's important for us to just take a very clear-eyed look at this and ask how much is money an issue? And I personally think it is quite a very big part of the uh, answer and not to be not to be beguiled by solutions which, uh, you know, everybody always says can't it be more efficient and I'm sure it can be more efficient. And I think there are many ways it's got to change the NHS, particularly with an ageing population, public health and all that. And we should talk about that. But but we somehow we we also have to kind of confront the reality of well we need, if we want a better NHS we're going to have to pay for it one way or the other and as well as all that no comedian slot this week because we have something special now famously in 1928 when Herbert Hoover ran for president 
One of his pledges was a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Well, we pledge a prime minister on every podcast. Last week, we had Catherine Jakobsdottir, the Icelandic prime minister. Yeah, and this week, we're talking to the prime minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern. She's been prime minister for about three months. Uh, She is a, a Labour prime minister. She came second and became prime minister. So we're sort of you detecting a pattern here, uh, listener. You know, we're looking for the prime ministers that came second. Make make me feel a bit better uh, that you don't need to become first to come first to be prime minister. Um, no, but the reason we're talking to Jacinda is that she, you know, she's another example of female leadership. Uh, I think she's another reason to be cheerful. She's she's passionate about a whole range of issues, child poverty, where she's taken on the brief herself as prime minister, which I think is really interesting. Climate change, where she wants to move forward. She's got interesting ideas about housing. So we're going to be talking to her about all of that. She also uh, extraordinarily used to work in the British Civil Service. She worked in the Cabinet Office uh-huh. um, at the time that... Um, Similar time that I was there. I did meet her once, I don't, not in my capacity as the cabinet office minister. Um, but we're, we've got bags to talk to her about and she's, she's, she's a really great person. And she, she had this meteoric rise. She, she, you know, she only became Labour leader on, in August of last year and she then became prime minister. Wow. Yeah. Do you think she can get me flight of the concourse tickets? You might ask. I might ask. Um, and we should mention that the interview was recorded before she announced that she's pregnant, which made worldwide news. She didn't give us the exclusive, sadly. Um, not that we would necessarily have asked her about it, but I thought it would be weird to not acknowledge it. So, shall we do our reasons to be cheerful? Do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, mine, mine's a, a simple one. I went to see Sarah Pascoe last week, who was on the podcast in the uh, early days, first uh, few episodes, and she was just fantastic. She's got a show called Lads, Lads, Lads that she's been doing a West End run of in London. She was really good, so I recommend that show. And I was also really delighted to see that the the theatre was selling crisps in little tubs instead of in bags uh, to minimise rustling. Really? Yeah. I think that's progress, isn't it? Not Pringles? Not Pringles, no. But, but sort of so no some name kind brand. of posh right. crisps, cheddar and caramelised onion. Do, do you, that, These are the middle class circles in but, which well, I'm but, moving but now. You, that's an issue for you, is it? The the rustling. Let me tell you, the, the, the one time I am assertive in life is shushing people in the cinema. Really? Yeah, I'm a I'm a very assertive shusher. Do you, are you really a yeah. big shusher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't think it of me, would you? Wow. But I really come out of my shell. But did it ever turn into a sort of uh, rumble in the jungle? And a sort it, of... it did, yeah. Really? Yeah, this is an awful story. So it was the first time that Sarah and I went to the cinema after Jean was born. Her parents were over. We got to go on a date night. It was exciting. It was this this film. Who's in contact, Emma? Is it Amy? Yeah. So it's this, this film Arrival. called... Arrival. Yeah, Arrival. It's this film called Arrival, which is kind of science fictiony, but it's very emotional as well. And behind me the whole time, there's this this couple talking, like a middle aged couple, and and uh, an unacceptable during the film. Yes, that's not good. A, an unacceptable volume. You sure it was wasn't because one of them was hard of hearing? Or I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, right. they, they weren't. You know, there wasn't a sort of really audio excuse. describing. No. no. So. Um, so we're watching it, and it get, it's getting towards its emotional climax, and it's, it, they're driving me insane. So I go, shh, and they just laugh, and then they carry on talking. So I turn around and go, can you be quiet, please? And and the guy tells me to F off, 
Oh my goodness! At which point I see red. You, you, which is, cinema was this? It was at the Vu Cinema in Islington. Vu, Vu, oh, Vu, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, Vu. And, yeah, and then I, I stood, Vu? I, I stood anyway. up, and I, I, I turned around. And I saw red, and I lost control in the middle of the film. In the middle of a film, and at this kind of volume, oh my goodness. I went, "You fuck off!" I didn't spend money to listen to you, pair of. And then I said the worst possible word, <laughs> and then they shut up. But of course, like what I had done at that point was far worse than anything they'd done. I'd taken like everybody in the vicinity out of the moment. In what, the did, film. what did everybody and, else? Well, I mean, there was just a very awkward silence, and people, you know, watched the end of the film in silence. But I couldn't concentrate. I was shaking, and. Um, well, they probably thought you were completely crackers. Well, my wife hissed into my ear. She went, we are not leaving this cinema until it's completely empty. Well, I think that's pretty reasonable. Uh, I think it's, it is as well. But in the meantime, I'd got my phone in my pocket. I got my hand on it um, so that if the guy tried to fight me, I could hold my phone up and say, I'm going to video this and put it on YouTube. <laughs> It'll go viral. Now, so, now, I think most people listening will yeah. think you're definitely sort of in the right. Mm. Uh, on the on the merits, right? But it was the but the, pro- the me- there's yeah. a proport there's clearly a proportionality yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. No, it, I mean I looked insane, and my wife says p- people were probably pitying her. Like, look at that poor woman with her husband with his rage problems. Yeah, that is kind of there, there was none of that at the at the theatre last night, and I largely put that down to crisps now being sold in in little metal tins. Well, um, there we go. There's there's my reason to be cheerful in a roundabout. Okay, and so I've got sort of uh, two really. One one is a bit self referential, so we've got a second. So one reason to be cheerful is that my friend Karen Buck has been putting forward a private members bill. Karen Buck is the MP for Westminster North, and she you know she's she's an absolutely brilliant person. Um, she kind of knows more about housing issues than anyone I know. She campaigns passionately on for social justice, and she's been putting forward this bill, which I th- it's called the Fitness for Human Habitation and Liability for Standards Bill. Anyway, so she's been putting it forward. She's been making her case a private members' bill, so it's what MPs can do on their you know on their own, and normally debated on a Friday. And uh, thanks to her persuasion, the cross party group that she's got behind. Um, her uh, partly probably in response to the tragic Grenfell, it, the government is now backing it, so it's gonna, actually going to happen. And, uh, you know, you can feel quite bleak about the way policy is developed in on housing and other things, but, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. And, yeah. and, 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 it, and it's great. It's uh, going ahead. And then my more self, self-referential reason is that, um, not just one, but two um, Conservative Party researchers came up to me in the House of Commons this week to say how much they like the podcast. And, so, and I think it's quite, you know, good that because I think it is about, you know, one of the things we're trying to do is is reach out to to kind of persuade more people of some of the policies that we need to change the country. And I think if we're persuading people who are Conservatives, that's great. And, um, you know, we, we welcome all all listeners of all political persuasion. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to get a picture of what life is like on the front line at the moment in A&E, we're joined by Dr. Hannah Barham-Brown, who's a junior doctor working in emergency medicine at London Hospital, and she is deputy chair of the BMA's Junior Doctors Committee. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So just as a sort of first off, what is it like uh, at this moment when we've got all these headlines about what's happening in A&E and 
you know, how, how does it feel to be a junior doctor? It's certainly stressful. The job is always going to be stressful, whatever time of year it is, whatever the situation in the NHS is. Um, but I think at the moment we're very aware that the world is watching us to a large extent. Um, you never know what you're going to be facing when you walk into work of a day. Um, you'll often turn up and there's, you know, there could be a queue of ambulances and you know that you're going to have a tough shift. Um, I think it is it can be quite demoralizing to be working at the moment because it does feel like a Sisyphean task. You're never going to get through it. You're never going to finish and see everybody and make everybody well. And you're having to make a lot of decisions that you don't want to necessarily make. Like, you know, does this patient need to stay in hospital? Can we get them stuff in the community? How many beds have we got available? How do we prioritize the care we're giving? And having trained for years to try and save lives and help people and make people well again, that's not a decision that we're naturally trained to do or naturally inclined to make all the time. Um, so that prioritizing of care and that prioritizing of work is quite a challenge, I think, for any professional. And you've been qualified as a junior doctor for about a year and a half. Yeah. Is that right? So this will be your second winter. Second winter as a doctor, yeah. But you've seen previous winters. I was a nurse prior to being a doctor. Right. So, yeah, so how has it changed over time? And is this winter different, worse than other winters? So, I mean, if you look at last year, we had the Red Cross declaring a humanitarian crisis in our A&E departments, which is not a situation anyone wanted to see, certainly. And yet this year, we now have a flu crisis on top of that. I don't think that anything has really improved since last year. And instead, we have additional challenges. Last year, the flu wasn't too bad. We got, got away very lightly. However, we knew coming into this winter, it was going to be worse than before because we look at countries like Australia who've just been through their flu season and they've had a terrible year for flu. And we knew that was going to be replicated here. So we haven't been told that it's a humanitarian crisis yet, but having been in and but around lots the of NHS cancelled operations. Time, yeah, we're now seeing operations being cancelled. We're seeing lots of additional pressures being put on. And so I think this winter is very, very bad. Um, it is, for me, what I'm seeing seems to be worse than previous years. And that's partly because we have this additional flu crisis, which was frankly entirely expected. And now 68 of the most senior emergency medical specialists in the country recently wrote to the Prime Minister in really stark terms about the extent of the crisis in A&E uh, caused by what they called severe and chronic underfunding. They talked about uh, patients in corridors. Uh, they talked about people dying prematurely as a result. Is it that, does it feel that bad on the front line? It can do, yeah. Um, so I have colleagues working around the country in various departments, and not only A&E, but in the community as well. There's a lot of pressure being put on our GP services at the moment to try and keep people out of hospitals. So yeah, it does feel very much like that. And I think everybody expects it when they know they're going to be working in certain parts of this service at this time of year. But going in and facing it every day, it's, it's not an easy job to walk onto every day at all. So could we just talk about the logistics of it? Is it that there are fewer doctors um, being, being rostered on to a shift or nurses rostered on to a shift? What, how exactly is the underfunding affecting things? So the underfunding is kind of hitting in a number of different ways. So yes, we do have rotor gaps 
across the system, particularly amongst medical professionals, but we don't have enough nurses. We are des- desperately in need of more nurses. But actually, one of the key ways in which it's hitting is that we've seen huge cuts to social care. So a lot of the services that are in the community just aren't there anymore or aren't sufficient to care for people. And so as a result, once somebody is in hospital, it's very, very difficult to discharge them because we have a duty of care. We can't discharge someone unless we know they're going to have sufficient care when they get home. And that can take days, weeks to set up in which point they're just sitting in a hospital bed where they don't necessarily need to be. But also we're seeing people coming into hospital because the social care package they have in the community isn't sufficient for their needs anymore. So it's a kind of double-edged sword. We can't keep people in the community and we can't get people out of hospital into the community simply because social care has been cut so much. And the cynic in me says that it's far easier to cut social care than it is health care because people care about the NHS. The NHS is one of Britain's great institutions and it's frankly a lot sexier than social care. Like you have 24 hours a and you have ER, you have casualty, you don't have, you know... Meals on wheels live. Exactly. You don't have that. And so I think people and the media take less of an interest when we see social care cuts, but they don't necessarily appreciate the effect that's going to have on the NHS. And so I think our social care services, I mean, I could never be a social worker. They have an incredibly hard job to do. And that pressure that we're feeling from having those cuts is coming right the way through into healthcare. If we want to integrate the two, and last week's cabinet reshuffle suggests that that's what they're very much trying to do now. We need to look at funding across the board and not just for health and just for social care. We need to think more holistically than that. Another question is to do with um, A&E and what you experience at A&E. Some people will look at this and, and sort of want to avoid the conclusion that it's about money and will say, ah, oh, well, it's just because lots of people are coming to A&E who don't really need to be there. How much of that an issue do you find that is as an A&E doctor? So... I mean, I'm currently working in A&E and I find this um, actually really quite frustrating when people say that because people don't come to A&E for a good day out. Like you can be sitting there for hours waiting to be seen. You've come to A&E because you are sick and because you need care. And whether you've come because you can't get a GP appointment, because our community services have been ravaged, or whether you're coming because... 111 service or a pharmacist has sent you in. People come to A&E for many, many different reasons. And I think to put the blame on the patients arriving at the door is very, very short-sighted. If people are coming unnecessarily to A&E, we need to be asking the question, why? We don't need to be blaming those people. And I get really frustrated when people take a long time to present to A&E because they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to be a pain. They don't want to be that person that's come in with a cold, in inverted commas. And as a result, they actually come in very sick. And so I think there's a huge risk of saying, oh, well, too many people are misusing the health service. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that we need to think we need to look at how it's structured and how we're supporting people so they don't need to present to A&E. So we have the services in the community and we're seeing people coming in to A&E not because they're sick, but because they don't have the social care they need. Until we sort out those problems, we cannot start blaming patients for turning up asking for care. It's a completely ridiculous concept. The title of this podcast is Reasons to be Cheerful. We, we're not asking you to be the cheerful, but you're, <laughs> you're offering the sort of realism. But, but if you're thinking about solutions, you know, from your position on the ground, what, what are they? 
I think we need to listen to frontline staff more. I think we need to get frontline staff engaged in making these big decisions because we know what it's like day in, day out. We all have ideas of how we can improve things and we need to kind of engage these people more. But is that about the money or is that about the efficient, the, the sort of, I hate the word efficiency in this context, but is that about the way the system works? I think it's about a bit of both. Yeah. So we see a lot of things that are kind of, put upon staff as this is how we're going to do this now but you've never actually asked a frontline member of staff whether or not it's going to work so then trying to apply that to a clinical setting it just isn't practical so I think there's definitely a point in which we need to do that I think one of the good and positive and here's a cheerful thing for you um one of the positive things we've seen come out of the junior doctor contract disputes is that junior doctors and the profession as a whole are really engaged now i'm seeing loads of my colleagues who are joining political parties joining unions not even necessarily mine but they're really trying to get engaged and they want to see an nhs that's still there in 20 years because a lot of us joined the NHS because we love it as an institution. We think it's amazing. I'm getting married on the NHS's 70th birthday. Oh, congratulations. Um, like, I, we do really, really love this as an institution and passionately believe in it. And so we are trying to fight for it. And I think there's so much enthusiasm out there to try and improve things and improve services for our patients that if you can try and encapsulate some of that and utilise some of that, we could see a really bright future for the service. But until then, we feel like we're constantly being kind of given platitudes on the one hand and then our lives are being made harder by cuts and that sort of thing on the other. So we need to kind of have a bit more of an integrated service and a bit more of a conversation going with staff. And talk about that morale question, because you said it, I think, very well, which is you know, people went into the health service for you know, very, very good reasons because they care about it as an institution because they care about making people better. What is the morale situation among your colleagues, you, your colleagues and others? I think it's really, really sad at the moment because there is so much passion for the NHS, but then we're also looking at ourselves as individuals and our lives and asking the question of how sustainable our careers really are. So I think morale at the moment does seem quite low, particularly at this time of year. It really breaks my heart to keep seeing colleagues saying to me, oh, well, actually, Hannah, I'm, I'm looking at what else I can do outside of medicine or moving away. And these are excellent, really well-trained young people right. that are just wanting to leave the service. And that's really hard to see. But I think the enthusiasm is there. The passion is there. But when you're constantly faced with this kind of work burden and this work pressure, it's hard. We're seeing huge spikes in junior doctor suicides over the last few years. Gosh. It's The mental health of our profession is really struggling at the moment. And part of my job with the BMA is to try and look at how we support staff a bit better and what we can put in place. Are people getting rest facilities? Are people able to kip after a night shift before they get in a car and drive potentially an hour to get home? Uh, and would I be right in thinking that one of the keys here you're in your late 20s, is the long-term plan for the, for the NHS. I know that is a, like a cliche now, but but it's it, it's trying to find a way that it isn't, that it doesn't go, it strikes me, that it doesn't sort of lurch from, well, not just crisis to crisis or reorganisation to reorganisation, but that there's some sense of longer-term stability about f- funding in particular, but direction. Most definitely. And I think that's one of the reasons that I personally found the plan for this winter of delaying operations to be really difficult because 
For example, if you look at surgical training, um, as a junior doctor, you come out of medical school, you are a doctor. You're not a specialist in anything. You have to go through years of training to get to that level. If you say want to train as a surgeon, um, you have to do so many of each operation, but you move around rotations. So if we move all of the knee operations from December through into January, February, if you're only on that firm for a few months and you have to tick off 27 knee operations, you're not necessarily going to get that done. So you're not going to get the training done, which delays your full qualification as a consultant. So it's all these little things that are just putting back and putting back. And we're taking from the future of the NHS to try and preserve it here and now. And we're not seeing this long-term funding plan in action that we really, really need. So I think we do need to have a bit more of a discussion. And I am by no means an economist. Um, But we do need to have a discussion about how we fund the NHS and where this money has got to come from. Because as a profession, I think as a country, we all seem to agree that we need more funding to keep the NHS as it is. And it is one of the greatest healthcare systems in the world. But it's not going to survive like that if we keep taking and taking and expecting it to somehow carry on because resources are now at an all-time low. Last question from me. I'm in the cheerful mode. What's (laughs) the thing you love the most about the NHS? I love the fact that whoever you are, whatever is wrong with you, you can walk into any hospital and complete strangers will do their damnedest to help you. I think that is possibly, I think it's a model for how society should work. Personally, I really, really love the idea that we will come together and fight for somebody. We might not know their name. We might not know anything about them. They could have come from prison. They could have come off the street. They could come from Buckingham Palace for all I care. I will treat them exactly the same and I will do my best to fight for them. And I think that's an incredible thing. That's an incredible value to have in any organization. So that's what I love about the NHS. Fantastic. Great note to end on. Hannah, thank you very much. Thank you. Really great to have you on. Thank you. So Hannah has described the situation from the point of view of the front line. Uh, I'm delighted now that we're joined by Anita Charlesworth, who is the Director of Research and Economics at something called the Health Foundation, which thinks about health service issues. They're conducting a review with the Institute of Fiscal Studies of the needs of the health service up to 2032, so 15-year review, which sounds really important. Anita also worked with me in the Treasury. She worked on something called the Wanless Review. Uh, in fact, she sort of helped write the Wanless Review, which led to greater funding for the NHS. Anita, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. We heard from Hannah about the situation from the front line. How would you describe, as somebody who thinks about these issues day to day, how would you describe the scale of the challenge for the NHS? So what we've essentially been trying to do is buck history. So uh, 2010, obviously, on the back of the um, economic crisis following the recession, government had a big deficit and was trying to cut that. Um, it protected the health service from the full force of those um, public spending cuts. But what that meant was that health spending over the last seven years has grown, grown by more than inflation, by about 1% a year more than inflation. So that's a good thing. The trouble is that because we're a bigger population, we've got about 3 million more people now than we did back in 2010. Um, we're an ageing population, which is very important for healthcare because you tend to use more health services as you get older there are new technologies um, and um, and we need to pay people because the health service is a people business when you add all those up to fund those you probably need something more like four percent a year more than inflation so there's a gap 
between what we've been putting in for seven years and, and what the service really needed. Government said that they could bridge that gap so there wouldn't be any impact on the quality of care or access to care by making the health service more efficient. And one of the things they've done is to hold down pay. So people in the NHS have seen their pay fall in real terms for the last seven years. And lots of the things that they did at the beginning, there probably were some opportunities to improve efficiency. You can always use money better. But a lot of the things that they did were actually cost cutting rather than efficiency. So to give you a prime example of one of the things that I think has really come back to bite us now, is they cut the number of nurse training places at the beginning of the decade. And what we're seeing now is obviously not only is funding a problem in terms of things like this winter, but we're short of nurses, right. we're substantially short of nurses. We haven't got enough staff, we haven't got enough capacity. You know, we're running uh, at really high levels of capacity, way over 90% at the moment, above any other country would, would run. And that means if you get peaks in demand, like sudden burst of flu or norovirus. Capacity is the sort of la- you know, spare beds. That you're, spare you're, beds, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So if suddenly, you know, on Monday afternoon... Yeah. And a load of people turn up because there's an outbreak yeah. of norovirus uh, locally. You do, you know, if every bed is full, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. yeah. So you need to keep a little bit uh, to name that to happen. Then the other thing really importantly is you need to be able to get people out of hospital quickly back home or if they're elderly in a care home to their care home. And what we're seeing is we're really struggling with that as well. And so more and more people are medically fit to go home, but they can't go home because there isn't that social care support for them because social care was one of the services that did bear the brunt of the cuts at the beginning of this decade. So well, let's unpack some of that. So you've got this review of the next 15 years or the, health, the needs of the health service for the next 15 years. Just a starting point for some of our listeners. How does the NHS rank for efficiency compared to other countries? Is it a relatively efficient service or, 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 or not? Yeah, so there are different ways of looking at efficiency. Um, but uh, the Commonwealth Fund, which is a body actually in the United States that looks at different countries' healthcare performance, they do a survey every few years and compare different countries. And uh, overall, they find us sort of top in healthcare when they look across a whole series of domains. On efficiency, they score us, I think, about third out of um, 11 countries. Um, we have low administrative costs compared to most other systems. So about 2% of our healthcare budget goes on administration. In the US, that's over 8%. Um, you know, raising money through tax means that we don't have to set up a specific way of raising money. And um, and the other thing that when people look at the efficiency of system overall, a lot of the, what they, they look at is things like, you know, do you duplicate services? So in France, you can go and see a specialist directly. You don't have to be registered with a GP and go through a GP. But And obviously, that's great in terms of access. Um, but what it means is that if you don't like the answer from the first specialist, you can go and see two or I three. I mean, that is a real problem. That would be a real problem. Please take Jeff, for example. He's got an, <laughs> he's got an anxiety about his thumb. Right? I mean, he'd be straight off to the consultant thumb expert. Uh, yeah. uh, and then when the first one said it's okay no, not I, to I worry, you go and find another consultant. What's interesting is my mother-in-law uh, lives in America and she is a hypochondriac to a far greater degree the, than I am. And you know, she will see no end of specialists yeah. because every time 
you know, you're referred to someone or you refer yourself, there's, there's money involved. So they're very happy to kind of waste money seeing people over and over again, which doesn't work in a system like ours, right? No, that's right. And then there are arguments, you know, that, that in some of those systems, doctors are incentivized to order more tests, you know, so they do lots and lots of tests. Whereas here we try to be quite careful about that. So, so we're relatively efficient. Relatively system. efficient. You can always do more. And we've got quite a lot of variation across our system, which isn't explained by need. So there's more that we could do. But across the globe, across the piece, yeah. we're pretty reasonable. And how much do we spend compared to others? Because that's obviously the next sort of uh, issue that we'll, we'll come on to sort of more detail about the way the health service is organised. But, but do we... Do we spend less than the Frances and the Germanys or more? Or Yeah. So the um, if you take health as a whole, so public and private spend, because there is a bit of private spend in the uh, UK as, as well, and there's a global consistent definition of health, which includes some of the things that we would typically call social care. That's to make it comparable. On that definition, we, broadly speaking, spend £1 in every 10 of our national income every year. So it's huge. It's 10% of our GDP. Um, now, about 80% of that is publicly funded uh, via the NHS. That 10% of GDP is pretty bang on the average for the kind of countries in the EU that were in the EU before the fall of the Soviet right. Union. Right. Yeah? So what we call the EU So we're 15. at the European average. We are at the European average. So... In that sense, um, that's great. And actually, our share of public and private is at that European uh, yeah. av- average. The trouble is that that's as a share of our national income. When you then look at what is our national income per person, it's not so good compared oh, so to lower. the – it's lower. So, so we're giving sort of the same amount of priority to healthcare. Yeah, but unfortunately, yeah, it'd be nice to have a bigger GDP. So that translated so, into into more money. So per person, then, yeah, we're spending the, below in the country. We're spent in actual pounds yeah. and pence. We're yeah. spending. Yeah, I nearly said shillings as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're dating us. Old. Uh, it didn't uh, occur to me because I'm a borderline yeah, millennial. Exactly. Uh, Jeff sort of got generational denial. Uh, um, <laughs> Right, so so we actually spend less, we, yeah, in real cash, money. Yeah. In real money. Um, the other thing which is quite interesting when you look across uh, those different countries is there are a group of countries. If you take your France, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands, and they spend about one percent of GDP more than us. Now that might not seem very much. But that's twenty billion pounds, right? Yeah, which people like me, when we crunch the numbers, think is about the gap. Right. We might need. Okay. Well, I would, you, so, you've, you've anticipated another question. Yeah. That's a, so, so it's quite a lot across. And the, the health service budget at the moment is is about 125 billion pounds right, in England. Okay. When you look across those countries as well, there's a big difference between Northern Europe and Southern Europe. So, in Southern Europe, they tend to spend less, but this includes a lot of the cost of looking after older people, which of, is done in the family, which is done in the family. And right. I think one of the questions for us is. Um, one of our many existential crises as a nation is, are we Northern European or Southern European? You know, do we want to have old people and people with disabilities cared for within the family, you know, and through informal care and voluntary? You might think, well, that would be a good thing because it would mean that we could, you know, we wouldn't have such a burden on our health service and our care system. 
But we have very high rates of participation in the labour market, particularly uh, female participation. And our pensions policy is predicated on all of us working to, what, 67, 68, um, which if we're in work in our 60s and we've got uh, our mother then in her late 80s, how are we supposed to do both? So Southern Europea, Europe isn't spending on care for the elderly, but it hasn't got the same rate of labour market participation. Right. What you can't have is Southern European levels of health care yeah, and Northern European levels probably of labour participation. Right. You have to choose. Okay, well, that's really interesting. Now, we'll come on to back to money in a second. Just when you get to your review, are, is there more that we could do in terms of prevention? So there's this cliche which has been around for a long time that the health service is too much an illness service and not a health service, yeah. and not a prevention service, I guess. I think I'm right in saying that public health budgets have been cut. That's right. Um, uh, what, what could we be doing in that? I'm presuming that's one of the things your review is looking at, that prevention agenda to prevent sort of lots yeah. of spending on you know illness yeah and uh there's definitely um a real need to do more on prevention and there are other classic things that we might all be familiar with about sort of diet exercise smoking and alcohol and we are the obesity and in particular the child obesity capital of europe you know which clearly has big implications and it you know we all know that has implications on things like uh, diabetes. Exercise, Jeff. <laughs> Did you hear that? Exercise. Yeah, I cycled here. I blame the government for not, for not doing enough to educate me about these things. Right, you're being it's educated. This is the re-education of re-educating Jeff. We'll call this episode. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. And you offered me biscuits. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I take some responsibility for that. Yeah, he's uh, a feeder. <laughs> But actually, obesity, we've got some of the worst obesity rates in Europe. We're middle of the pack on smoking. So although actually smoking rates have come down and been really important in terms of driving better outcomes on heart and stroke. And probably the, the decision to ban smoking in public, in yeah. more public places, yes. has probably made a huge difference in not just saving lives, but saving money for the NHS. That's an example of a public health measure. Exactly. And also what's important to remember about that is that Public health measures aren't all, all spending, you know. So a lot of the things that government can do are regulatory. And what would that be? Sugar content in so, cereals? Yeah, so, so, there's a, so one of the measures that's coming in this spring, for example, is this levy on uh, sugary drinks which is very uh, clever in terms of really encouraging firms to reformulate so that they reduce the amount of sugar in those in those drinks so you know government needs to do and could do a huge amount more another area is um elderly people and the way we look after elderly people and the so-called integration between health and social care as part of your review presumably you're looking at the way this can be done better i mean jeremy hunt is now the secretary of state for health and social care but it can't just be a change of his title presumably that is part of an effective Yes. way of spending public money i think if people the, being stuck in hospital all absolutely that stuff. if if one of the things that the, the last uh, seven or eight years should have taught us it's that you cannot see the nhs as an island on its own and it's great to protect the nhs and try to protect the nhs but if you do things like slash social care budgets actually what you have is the sort of public service of last resort which ends up being clogged up with people who, where frankly it isn't the best thing for them either you 
you know, there's quite a lot of evidence that being in a hospital bed, you know, once you've had your first treatment is actually quite bad for you. People's mobility, you know, you need to be up and about moving. Yeah, people lose their independence. Old people come into hospital, stay in hospital. They never get back to the sort of independence I mean, I, that they have. Am had I right before. in saying the number of over 80s is going to something like double over the next 20 years? Well, so if you look even just at the short period of time, the, the five years of this parliament will have 700,000 more over 65s. Right. So it's now. Yeah. You know, it's happening now. We often talk about aging as if it's a problem that's a, well, a problem, yeah. benefit, you know, yeah. issue definitely that's kind of coming in the future. It's now. Right. Um, and I think the, the issue with, uh, with, with social care is, uh, I mean, there's a big issue about what's the fair balance between people paying um, out if they're if they're better off and they've got housing assets out of their own assets and the state and actually the government did legislate on this back in 2014 and with a proposal that um, a former head of the IFS uh, Sir Andrew Dillnott, uh, had had suggested whereby individuals contributed up to a certain amount if they had housing or savings assets and then above that amount then the government but they've never implemented up. the Dillnott, but they have, and, yeah. and they said oh we'll delay that to 2020 money, that's a money thing is that and, yeah, and the big problem, and then obviously Scotland has free personal care. All, all of these things, there's a kind of, you know, which do we like? What do we think is fair? But then there's all of those various versions of fair, wherever you come down on that, have a massive pound sign. And let's get on to money then. Just before we get on to sort of tax funded options, just let's deal with this issue of charging, um, mm. because it's, you know some people might wonder uh, about it. Um you said the NHS budget was 125 billion. Is charging, you know, ten pounds to your GP and all that? I've got my views on it, as you can imagine. But from your health economist point of view, is that a solution? Uh, no, uh, and I think um, actually the experience of prescription charges, which is a charge that we've got, is a really good example of some of the issues around that. So at the moment, out of that 125 billion. We also raise about 500 million pounds from prescription charges. Um, and the, uh, and that's out of a, uh, uh, budget for, uh, drugs that are dispensed by your GP of 10, 11 billion pounds. And the issue is, of course, that actually, um, for reasons of, uh, of fairness, um, we say that the people who need lots of drugs because they've got lots of things wrong with them, people who are elderly, children, yeah, people who need things that will stop them spreading, you know, some nasty communicable uh, disease, they all get the drugs for free. We exempt yep. them from the charge because we want to make sure they can get them. Now, of course, what it turns out is that they're about 90% of the drugs that we actually dispense go to the people. So quite apart from the ethics and the morals of this, this isn't isn't going to solve the problem. No, and so what you end up doing is run this big administrative system, you know, and then you end up exempting most of the people uh, from it. And so then you you don't raise very much money. And the Germans had a go a few years ago at charging for the GP – and they had exactly hugely unpopular with patients. GPs don't want to be having, and the receptionists don't want to be having to argue about, well, so am I going to let you in if you refuse to pay it? You know, what am I going to do? Are you exempt? Have you not got the right bit of paperwork with you? What do I do in that cir- circumstance? He didn't raise a huge amount of money. And then the other problem with it is if I have to pay to go to the GP and I don't want to pay to go to the GP, I should go to any. Yeah, and that's right. more expensive. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and so actually I've ended up leading to a system that's more expensive. And then the final thing that it's worth saying is, for example, one of the where areas where we don't do very well in terms of international uh, comparisons and outcomes is cancer survival. And we are getting a lot better at that, but we're still, you know, not as good as we'd like to be. And one of the reasons for that is that we diagnose cancers too often late and we diagnose way too many of them in emergency, not picking them up routinely. Now, the problem is that by and large for a lot of people, the symptoms of cancer don't say, I'm cancer. Yeah, they're quite uh, innocuous things in in some cases. So we need people to see their GPs. So pe- you need people actually to go, and nine times out of ten, ninety nine times out of a hundred, that is not cancer. But unless you get people to say, actually, do you know what? If I'm passing a bit of blood, I need to go and see the GP. Um, you won't pick that up and you won't have those better outcomes. And treating people late is often more expensive as well as having poorer survival. So we've gone through some of the solutions, some of the things that aren't solutions. Just on the money question, you worked on the one-less review, as I said. Mm-hmm. If we, Let's say we make you prime minister for a day. Um, I'd, what would you do? So I think there are two things that are important. We need to give more money. But actually, what we need to do is to think rather more about how we make decisions. I would bring health and social care together. Absolutely. Uh, I'd have a proper programme of health prevention, get really serious about obesity, alcohol, use all the levers that I've got at my uh, disposal, all that stuff for sure. Um, I'd have um, some really dedicated work on mental health for children and young people because I'm sure the payback to that social and economic is, is that the sort of number that you don't even need to do? It's so obvious. But then what I'd look at is obviously putting more money in, but really thinking about changing the system. Because one of the problems in the UK, if we look at it, is not only at the moment do we clearly have a funding gap, but actually we have this cycles of boom, boom and, and bust. bust. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, I mean, you know, so the one less money. We want an end to boom and bust. We want an end to boom and bust. The one less money was great, but we did put a lot in very fast and the NHS actually did struggle at times to spend that as well as it could and then now of course we're not putting enough in and in a service where it takes 15 years to train a consultant and however many years you know to build and run a so hospital. So how do you get rid of that end to boom and bust? So I think there is uh, I was involved a House of Lords last year had a, a, a select committee that looked at the future sustainability of the NHS and they argued for a body a bit like the Office of Budget Responsibility that does all the forecasts on our economy. Now, they don't decide what economic policy should do, be. That's a political decision. And we live in a democracy and I still want to live in one. Those decisions are political. Health budget is one pound in every five of tax that we pay. That's got to be a political decision. You can't have someone who isn't accountable to the public making a decision. But actually, you could improve the transparency and accountability for those decisions by putting in place something like an OBR, which showed people, if you want a health service that delivers this sort of quality and access with this sort of health need, this is the money you would need. These actually are the human resources that you would need. And this is the type of service you know, that you need o- to decide. Oddly enough, in the area of climate change, yeah. we have the Climate Change Committee that sets carbon budgets yeah. for five-year cycles ahead. Yeah. You know, you could easily imagine that kind of uh, yeah. 
that kind of thing. And I think Labour had some kind of proposal like this at the last general election. It, it, it did. And the Lib Dems are also quite attracted to it. And it's very interesting. Um, over recent months, Jeremy Hunt has been talking a lot more about the need for longer term planning, that the short termism that we have had uh, is one of our problems in, in, in our NHS. And we've realised as well with infrastructure, we've now got the Infrastructure Commission because we've been rubbish at and building And to be clear, this is roads. not taking the decisions out of politics. No. But some people say, let's just take their politics out of health. And I kind of see the ambition for that. But there are always decisions to be made about who's going to be taxed, how much you're going to be spend yeah. and all that. Yeah. But at least let's have some objective kind of sense of what is required. So the problem at the moment is, in essence, you get particularly, obviously, through the political process, the have cake and eat it narrative, you know. Um, And so, you know, we're giving 1% extra in terms of funding, but you can have seven-day services, transformed mental health, first-class cancer care, and we'll do it all by this magic of efficiency that you can't see and no one else has ever done. And, And actually, obviously, the other thing is that actually, if you look at the last couple of elections, all the political parties have promised a bit more money, but none of them have promised anywhere near the amount of funding. And there's also actually then there isn't much challenge and accountability because if one party raises it in terms of the other party's manifesto, well, they can just come back and say, well, you, you've not got the answer either. And for some of those longer term issues, it's too easy then for all political parties just to duck away from it. Last question from me. Um, and we want an optimistic answer here because that is the point of this podcast. I think it's really important that we answer this question, which is can the NHS be sustained? In, in the poll that you did last year, you, it was very striking. 88% of the respondents supported a tax-funded NHS as we have now. I think that shows where how the British people feel. I mean, this can be done, can't it? I mean, £20 billion is a lot in one sense, but as a you know, proportion of the overall budget of public spending, which is... What, 750? Yeah. Yeah. 750 billion. So, you know, we're not talking about things that's going to break the bank. So a couple of things I would say that are really important for why I'm optimistic in the medium term. One is this year is the 70th anniversary of the NHS. And if you think back to when it was founded... Yeah, in a t- we'd come out of the war, we were absolutely broke, and the fabric of our country was in tatters. Yeah, and actually, what did people do? They set up this ambition for everyone in the country, regardless of ability to pay, to be able to to get healthcare. And if they can do that, then yeah, surely now, seventy years on, not only do we owe it to the people then. Yeah, to be a bit bold and secure its future. But, we, you know, we've got challenges now. They're real challenges, but they are as nothing compared to what we were facing in 48. So I really do think that the actually it's all very difficult is a bit of a pathetic excuse, actually, if you look back for history. If you compare us internationally, you know, France and Germany spend 11%. Have their economies fallen over? Has the social fabric of their society been destroyed? I don't think so. So so, you know, it's, you know, there's international precedent for this and people go on fire. And also it's an area where, um, for once, helpfully at the moment, the experts and Joe Public are absolutely in agreement. People value enormously tax-funded NHS free at the point of use. 
when uh, geeks like me go through all the analysis, guess what's a really good way of organising and funding your healthcare service? Tax-funded NHS free at the point of use. You know, so the fundamentals are right. Yeah, they're as solid today as they were 70 years ago. But we need to look after it. Anita, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So we're going to seek some wisdom from the Lord. Lord Nick McPherson, uh, former. How long did it take you to think that up? Seconds, Ed. It was, it hours, was, it was hours, seconds. Hours. Uh, former permanent secretary of the Treasury. But, and this is exciting, um, Ed uh, Nick says he, you were the first person he met at the Treasury all those years ago in 1997 when things could only get better. I know. It was. Uh, it, it must have been quite late on the Friday afternoon because general elections are usually on Thursdays and they, they all finally turned up. And Ed, at that point, I think was one of the younger members of the Brown team. Was he? Uh, me- was he memorable? Is it? When, uh, when yeah, think- he was. I, I, I can remember this because you know it, Ed Balls was like the sort of older brother who you know had um, had uh, made all the connections and already found himself a room. Right. And you know Ed Miliband, who clearly had not been allowed to sort of near the treasury up till that point, so sort of turned up very enthusiastically. He kept holding a briefcase, but. He, no one had anywhere to put him, so I just remember him sitting at one of the desks in the in the office, whilst um, you know chaos reigned around. Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere was found um, for him to live. Right, um, but you know, those were good days. Was that you misjudging sort of the dress code for the first day at work? Um, was it replaced? Well, by I think a... there was a bit of that actually, because. Because he looked totally respectable all... and he had a t- sort of special new Labour tie and a white shirt. Oh, I, don't right. think I think new um, Labour tie is a bit of a low blow. But the it was such a culture clash, wasn't it? Or cult, not culture clash, but it was such a sort of cultural sort of uh, kind of shock for everybody. I think my memory of Nick is that by the – within he'd been – Ken Clark's principal private secretary, he'd been persuaded by to, to stay on, saying it would all be nice. Anyway, within like six weeks, there was he had like a, a can of beer at like three o'clock in the afternoon in order to get him through the day with Mr. Brown uh, and us. I think that is that is not unfair, is it? It, it was um, it was quite a shock um, because um, you know anybody who knows Ken Clark and he had been a minister for eighteen years by then. He took reduced. Being chance this checker to fine art, you know, I'm reduced law- being I'm, the sort of operative I'm laws, I'm laws such as you know, no meetings before nine thirty in the morning, uh, plenty of time to deal with this constituency correspondence because he's always been a very good constituency MP. Long and, lunches and long lunches, and also the important thing of driving, uh, getting in his red Ford Escort XR three. And driving up the motorway on a Friday morning, not to return until Monday lunchtime. And you'd always have a situation on a Monday morning where John Major had to speak to Ken urgently, and uh, you'd have to explain that he was impossible to get hold of because he didn't he refused, as to, as he does to this day. If you try and ring his mobile phone, you'll never get an answer. Um, so contrast that with the Brown regime. I remember day two of the brown regime which is a saturday for god's sake you know you don't work saturdays but um <laughs> even when you're making the bank of england independent i thought you know i got a show i'm really keen and uh you know up with a program and um got in at the extraordinary hour of 8 a.m um unprecedented um only to discover that gordon brown had turned up at five in the morning <laughs> and the security guards had had to be summoned to try and open all the doors 
And, you know, I turned up and he'd clearly been uh, sort of banging away at some announcement for three hours and his team... Um, whom, understandably... You know, looked slightly haunted. Um, it already looked slightly haunted. They, you see, the great thing about being a civil servant is the one time you can have a holiday is during a general election. These guys, this is when it all comes together. This is make or break time, whether you're an advisor or an MP. And um, anyway, um, th- these were good times. And, um, you know, I, I always saw Ed Miliband as the acceptable face of uh, Gordon Brownism. Isn't that a lovely thing to hear, Ed? Um, yeah. Uh, the the um, but the the in seriousness, before we get to the health of us, which we should, the thing that Nick and I worked on then incredibly closely together. Nick sort of recovered was the lad a bit of time off, I think, after kind of recovering from the shock of the Brown regime, and then was the kind of mastermind of the new tax credits um regime which made a huge difference to redistribution and taking people out of poverty and he ran the whole team of people in the treasury that um that worked in this area and indeed the treasury's writ ran very large over this area of policy didn't it for a, under your under it your did. tenure and under it, and under it, chancellor brown it did and um it was it, it was a time when um there was a lot of uh, money coming in the economy was growing rapidly um, living standards were rising rapidly. So there were, you know, big things you could do. Um, Brown was instrumental in introducing the national minimum wage. He had this huge uh, welfare-to-work program designed to sort of reconnect the long-term unemployed and uh, the young people with with the world of work. But also this tax credit system was actually – absolutely fundamental to making work pay and um, to putting money in people's pockets, many of whom couldn't uh, command particularly high wages. And it's one of these interesting things. I mean, there were problems latterly about um, some of the implementation of that policy, but it is very striking that um, that even with uh, subsequent conservative governments, um, this is now um, absolutely part of the system. It's in, Indeed, it's been further improved conceptually with something called universal credit, which we simply, we looked at back in 97, but the technological barriers at that time were too great. I mean, the issue obviously with universal credit is you can have a system and then it's a question of what numbers you put in it. And yeah. Um, yeah. obviously the universal credit is far less generous than the, than the tax credits we had then. Now on to the present day, um, the NHS. Yep. Um, you're a free citizen now. You're no longer permanent secretary to the Treasury. Just say something about what the NHS means to you as a citizen rather than as a former official bureaucrat, etc. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about the NHS, and I say this as a crossbench, um, politically uh, neutral sort of person, is it is the last and only great socialist institution in this country. And it's it's regarded with extraordinary affection by the British people. And in my lifetime, whenever anybody has dared to challenge the principle of providing healthcare free at the point of use, um, they've invariably had to retreat very rapidly from that position. So it is, I think, um, deeply uh, loved. Um, It is sort of embedded in British consciousness, and it chimes with the long, I think, the sort of the streak of the British people which want to see fairness. Um, but it's like all um, all 
provision which is free at the point of use always ends up having to be rationed. Uh, I mean, politicians will never say healthcare is rationed, but it is because the one thing which was wrong, I mean, which the, the great fathers of the NHS thought that once everybody got healthy, you know, Nybevan and people will need to use this NHS less. But the reality is that people's demand for healthcare is infinite. And with technological developments, they want more and more of it. And um, on top of which, we now have issues like an aging population. So for me, as a citizen, it's, it's, it's one of the great conundrums of government. How do you ensure the NHS is well enough resourced to keep waiting lists reasonably under control um, without expenditure going through the roof and um, having to result in massive unpopular tax increases. And I think all governments wrestle with this. I mean, obviously, latterly, um, the focus has been very much on keeping spending under control, and that's meant really trying to squeeze so-called efficiency improvements out of the NHS. But in my view, that's now affecting services, and I think we're just at one of those defining moments which comes around every 10 years or so where the country's really got to decide um, whether it wants to spend more and if it does, um, which I fear will be necessary, um, how it's going to fund it. And and you did a rather intriguing tweet on this um, earlier this month. You said, need a grown-up debate on long-term funding of the NHS. I would suggest a hypothecated tax to be renewed every five years. Explain what that means, a hypothecated tax, and what your vision is. Well, I am absolutely convinced that, um, you know, if, if we continue with the NHS, it is going to need more money. And the main political parties at the moment tend to um, be good at focusing on the extra resources. And indeed, the government's just put a bit more money into the NHS, very much a sort of piecemeal a sticking plaster solution. But they, they, they're not talking about how you fund it. And so actually what's happening is this is effectively being funded out of borrowing. My view is we're already borrowing quite enough. I mean, you can argue maybe we could afford to borrow more. I, I, I actually am worried, you know, borrowing just is still not totally under control. So the question is, if you're going to have to spend more, you're therefore going to have to raise some revenue from tax. And how do you reconnect the citizen with the tax they pay and the services they get? And I think the one reason I'm in favour of hypothecation, let me explain what that means, because it's a deeply technical and tedious term. But hypothecation is basically saying, we will allocate a certain tax to a certain service. So, so you'd have, like, for example, an NHS tax? Yes. Um, now... Um, you know, you can get into the detail of precisely how this all works. You know, you can have really hard hypothecation, which, you know, the NHS would be only funded by this tax. The, the risk with that is that taxes tend to be cyclical. You know, you have a downturn, your revenues start drying up. You don't necessarily want to cut spending on the NHS. So um, I, I'm kind of thinking of a special tax, both to fill the gap uh, in uh, resources, but also to deal with this really big problem, which is going to hit us really hard from about 2020 onwards, which is this demographic time bomb. This is the point where the baby boomers start really getting old. And government simply won't face up to this. You know, we've got this independent body who does these projections. And if you look at their long-term projections, there is no doubt that expenditure on pensions and the NHS and social care is going to rise. But nobody is talking about, well, 
how are we going to fund this? And up till now, what's tended to happen is pensions have carried on increasing. NHS spending has gone up a, you know, it's gone up, but some would argue not enough. But the government solution has been to cut everything else. So, you know, it's no wonder we're getting riots in prisons because the so-called non-protected expenditure, which is largely prisons, you know, the police and so on, has been squeezed quite severely. And I think the British people might be attracted to an NHS tax, provided, you know, there is clarity that this is going into the NHS, provided, you know, ahead of an election, you can have a proper debate based on reasonably independent projections so that we don't just argue about the forecast because it's terribly easy to just say oh we can spend pay for it out of growth but the one thing we've realized over the last seven years is there's precious little growth um so i think this is something worth looking at so so it will be an nhs tax on top of the existing i think tax it, it has to be it has to be it has to be additional um, because there's a gap. And, and would that be looked like through the income tax system or well, would, um, national insurance? Yes. Or um, I think I think there's a case. Um, I mean, in principle, there are only three taxes which really could, um, which are big enough to bear the weight of um, of these pressures. One is um, income tax. The other is national insurance, and the other is VAT. Now, personally, I'm quite attracted to using national insurance. So, except, for, I mean, partly because, you know, there's a history of uh, national insurance paying for health and, and for pensions. Um, but the, I would make one change, which is that at the moment when you get to retirement age, you stop paying national insurance. Actually, the, the big change over the last 20, 30 years is actually the old folk actually, when all is said and done, they're as well off as, as young people. Indeed, actually, a lot of them are a lot better off than young people. So... I don't, and real wages have been under pressure because of the so-called triple lock. Pensions have actually been rising faster than wages, which I think personally was a mistake. Um, and I'd, I'd actually, one of the ways I'd like to support health spending is actually to get pension spending more under control. But um, it's important that the old folk also contribute uh, to this NHS tax because they're the main beneficiaries. They've, they've got a bit of surplus money. But it, wouldn't we, there be the argument that they spend the whole lives contributing to it? Well, yes, but um, why should young people... Young people's wages have been falling. Uh, they're having to already pay for the pensions of the old folk. Um, they're going to get smaller pensions themselves. I think we're applying far too much tax on uh, working people. Uh, to use the cliche, much beloved of politicians, you know, hard, hard-working families who work hard and play by the <laughs> rules. Um, I think this tax has got to. It's almost a solidarity tax, and it should be um, a solidarity tax across the generations. And I think, based on income, uh, the old folk um, need to contribute as well. Now, you know. People don't like paying taxes, and it may be that this is unpopular. But if the British people aren't prepared to vote for an NHS tax, then they've got to accept that they're going to have worse services from the NHS. Something has got to give. You've been in the Treasury until 18 months, two years ago. What is your sense about the scale of the Mardanita? Charles was said to us earlier, $20 billion. Um, do you have a sense of that? Well, I think, I think there are two things going on. There's, there's what the NHS needs and what social care um, needs. And social care, you know, is chronically underfunded. Um, the money goes through local authorities. 
But the NHS also now is coming under pressure. I can't remember precisely what the UK spends on the NHS. I think it's about 145 billion. I think uh, you're, you know, going to need ultimately five to ten percent, probably more than that. So you're looking at something like um, seven billion, fifteen billion. Could be up to twenty billion over a longer period, but so it's a it's a significant wadge of money. But isn't there a deeper point here, which is, and we had Anita put this to us: there should be some independent body like the Climate Change Committee or the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is looking five years ahead or ten years ahead and saying, "Look, this is the demand to get you the health service of this kind," and yep. politicians can then decide whether they do it yep. or not. You don't take the decisions out of the hands of politicians, but you've got to set a proper because at the moment we're in a weird halfway house where the NHS England is supposed to be doing that, but not entirely independent. No, I, do, I mean, look, I think the last people who should do it are um, yeah, NHS England. I mean, look, if you ask uh, a manager how much resources they need, they'll always say they need a whole lot more. But what you do need is um, a independent organisation which can map out what um, the resources the system is likely to need, taking into account demography, taking into account historical pressures, you know, understanding a bit about the technology. It doesn't have to get into huge levels of detail, but it can then set out, in a sense, this is the baseline necessary to keep the show on the road. I would like, in, in my sort of ideal system, this would take place in the, we now have fixed term parliament so in year five of the parliament the independent office for budgetary responsibility which really looks at this actually it does long-term projections which no one takes a blind bit of notice of but they should um it was set out the five-year figures and then it would be down to the politicians to debate whether these figures um need more money um, or if they think they can live with less how or they, how you raise how money you and how you raise and, money and then how you raise the money because that's the gap at the moment. Everybody goes into elections, you know, confident that that they can spend the money, but the quality of debate on the funding is is really quite um, disappointing. I mean, I don't want to be rude about politicians there, but um, <laughs> but I can't remember what your plan in two thousand and it was excellent fifteen was. Uh, uh, but it was I'm excellent. sure it was all about paying for it out of growth. No, it wasn't, but it was excellent. We were raising taxes, but anyway, leave that to one side. Um, yeah, now, it, what? Yeah, I'm not. I don't, let, we'll move move we on. Will, yep. Move on. Final question: Are you cheerful? Do you think we can? Do you think this can be sorted? You were there when. Gordon Brown raised taxes after the one list report. In fact, you were in charge of this area uh, with national insurance. This can be done, can't it? It can be done, but it requires um, management. And as I, you know, I know you should always be distrustful of people who say we need a we need a really good debate about something. But actually, it it does need debate and discussion. Um, I think people have got to realise the pressures on the system. And if they if they really value the NHS, which they claim they do, then they're going to have to pay for it. And, um, I mean, look, there are other models. Um, you know, we could move to a European system and we could even move to a US system. But if, if we're going to continue with the current one and people aren't going to have to wait years for operations, um, it is going to require more resources. But I, it can be done. Gordon Brown did it in 2001 by creating a sort of, in a sense, a one year debate using reviews and generally talking about it. And I think it's the only successful discretionary tax increase I can remember was Gordon Brown's 2002 increase in national insurance to pay for the NHS. But, you know, he, he achieved that by, in a sense, setting out 
the options, the trade-offs, the alternatives. And I think uh, the politicians of all the major parties really need to address this now. Um, but, um, you know, the, the risk of sounding like a Treasury official, it it also requires you to look at some of your other commitments. We cannot continue with, you know, our commitments on pensions and our um, a commitment to a really good NHS and our commitments to, um, you know, spend the monies on education, overseas aid and defence. Or, or we raise taxes. Yeah, or we raise taxes, but something is going to have to give. Nick, thank you so much uh, for joining us both to talk about the NHS and your reminiscences. It's beautiful to witness the reunion. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Lots to get your teeth into. Sorry we haven't solved the problem of your thumb, but... Well, the, you know, hopefully we're going to do more episodes and, and that yeah. really would warrant an episode. You can come back to your yeah, 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 of its own, really. Exactly. And even though the situation with the NHS can, on the face of it, seem quite dire, 1% doesn't seem it doesn't seem like one percent of national income yeah it doesn't seem unattainable when you hear that we spend 10 percent of our gdp on health and comparable countries elsewhere in uh, europe spend 11 i think you could sell that to the public the public loves the nhs and we want it to work and it benefits us all i i don't think that's this huge leap and sometimes You'll hear people say, yeah, well, what the Conservatives are doing, they've got a secret plan to run it into the ground, then they can introduce an American-style system. I, I, I know there are you know, different opinions on how much private money there should or shouldn't be in the NHS, but I, I don't think that any anybody really in mainstream politics is looking at America and thinking, oh, we should do it like that. And I certainly don't think any, the public are thinking that either. The danger is you end up with sort of America by accident in the sense of you the health service gets run down and then people have to go private if they want to be treated quickly but but look the, we've got to keep the consensus for the tax funded nhs but we've also got to face up to what people are telling us you, we've we've heard inspiring people hannah you somebody who's a junior doctor working on the front line but she's in it but she cares about the health service she's telling us something needs to be done you've got anita saying you know it's right to have a tax funded system but more needs to go in and i think it's great that people like nick mcpherson are starting or or, or pushing a public debate on this and i'm attracted not just to the idea that we raise more money for the nhs i think we do need to do that also, the idea that you need some independent body, not to take the politics out of it, but I don't think you're ever going to take the politics out of it completely, but to say, what are the needs? If you want a decent health service, what do we need to, what do we need to do? And I think, you know, we should be, we should be pushing this debate forward. We should, Labour had proposals at the last election to raise some money uh, from taxing the rich. I think that is a stepping stone towards what we need. Um, but I think, you know, this is something we all care about. This is something that 88%, you don't normally get 88% of the public agreeing on anything. 88% of the public want to keep our NHS, but we've got to fund it. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Please do get in touch with us if you've... Um, heard something you want to comment on on today's show, you've got a suggestion for a future topic, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com or you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast podcast <laughs> just checking um, just making sure you are still <laughs> listening. Now I think one thing I should say is we are getting like a ton of emails and we please keep them coming. If we don't reply to every one, well, we actually don't reply to quite a lot of them. Uh, I'm sorry. There's just more because of we're, we're, we're quite sort of stretched, but we do read them all and we really like them. So, so uh, keep them coming and we're going to read out a few now. Uh, the first one comes from Sam Gould. Hi, Ed and Jeff, big fan of the podcast, especially enjoyed this week's episode on rethinking economics, which I think is really important. One subject that wasn't discussed was political economy. I studied this for my postgraduate after doing a politics degree, and it really tackled a lot of what was discussed on your show, as well as looking to a lot of economic theory, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, etc. One of the key tenets of the course I did at Warwick University was the understanding that you simply cannot separate economics from politics. They're inextricably linked. One thing we looked at was the idea of the market, something that traditional economists often refer to as some otherworldly entity that thinks and acts for itself. The market, of course, is a group of individuals acting and behaving in different, often irrational ways. Uh, and then he points out that Professor Matthew Watson at Warwick University is leading a research project entitled Rethinking the Market, looking at just this idea. Uh, he also goes on to say, I just throw this in. On another note, I met Ed once when working for a dementia charity, Alzheimer's Society. During the 2015 election, I came to his office when he signed a pledge for people with dementia. His pledge was certainly better than David Cameron's, his handwriting less so. Yeah, you, uh, you don't I should have, have great, been a doctor. Not great penmanship. I should have been a doctor. Yeah. Um, also on economics, this comes from Ed Pennington who says uh, uh, he, he explains that he studied philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford. Uh, he's doing a master's in economics at Birkbeck and um, has worked at the IFS. It says, I have hundreds of thoughts. On That's the, the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Yes. For those. Yep. Yep. I have. I knew that. I know you think. No, that I know. I, thought you, I was just saying IFS. No, no, and I, didn't I know, know what it was. I, I knew that you, you thought that. I, I thought it was DFS, the, the sofa people, or the Institute for Football Studies. No, no, <laughs> I, I knew you knew you knew that. Uh, it says I've had 
hundreds of thoughts on the things you discuss and the people you interview, but I'll try and keep it brief. In terms of things I liked about the podcast, Wendy Carlin and her work is fantastic. It's exactly the kind of thing that's needed, and it was great to hear on the podcast. I completely agree with Ed about the role economic complexity takes in being used by the powerful to deny even the possibility of change. Minimum wage reduces employment being a prime example. Groups like Rethinking Economics have definitely made a big difference. Uh, He also says, I was particularly chuffed that in an episode about the way the field of economics is structured, every single guest was a woman, as I'm sure Ed recalls, the self-assured scientific rationality of economics as a field arises from and attracts a certain type of male arrogance that it would be good to see the end of. He also says, my final comment is that I stand in solidarity with Ed Miliband and his need to have his desserts described to him when he is unsure. I am the green apple sorbet one. (laughs) Stand in solidarity with the green apple sorbet one, as for those who listened last week, not with the cornflake one over there. (laughs) The hairy cornflake. The hairy cornflake one. The bearded cornflake one. Uh, He says, P.S. One of my politics tutors at Oxford at the time, 2012, was Ed's speechwriter. But he was absent a lot of the time because he seemed to think he had better things to right, do. Right, moving on, moving on, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Nothing to see there. Uh, the next one is from Laura Cornaro. Uh, Hi, guys. Hope all is well. Loved the interview with Ka- Katrin Jakobsdottir. Your pronunciation is very I know, good. but I messed up the Katrin that time, didn't I? <laughs> it's just because you said to me just before we came on air that I, my pronunciation was very good. I kind of felt the pressure. Have I you just been kept... doing a, a linguophone Icelandic yeah, course? Yeah, I have actually. Yeah. Uh, it's this little sideline I've got. I just came back from Iceland. It was truly amazing. I fell in love with their folk stories. And I must say, I'm with Jeff on Trolls. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, e- even Katrin admitted to it in the end there's a big cover-up amongst the icelandic they don't want the rest know, of us to you, know about but you you I, were the woodward and bernstein was, of your time they exposed the nick watergate you had a hunch you went yeah, for it yeah. you left no stone unturned no. you did the investigative hard yards um now the challenge she's got i think is more complicated identified primarily as a european citizen and one of the things that i found most infuriating about the whole brexit debacle was the way the eu weaknesses were exaggerated in the public discourse some of them were made up but no one gave a clear and comprehensive account about its greatness not even the remain campaign so i challenge you to do an episode focusing on the amazing things the eu is achieving for its citizens there's so much from securing long-lasting peace to promoting equality and fighting discrimination I believe that a big portion of UK equality legislation was prompted by EU laws to workers' rights and consumer protection and to level up on difficulty, never mention Brexit. Up for it. Uh, Lara, P.S. I told my family about class struggle when I went for Christmas. And guess what? There's an Italian version of it. Wow. La classe struggler. <laughs> your <laughs> Italian's something. not quite up to your Icelandic. Okay. Oh, uh, maybe that's what you should be doing the linguophone. Uh, I love Italian. Uh, <laughs> Actually, funnily enough, you know, after the after the general election of 2015, I was at my local jumble sale uh, in my local church and I discovered a Teach Yourself Italian CD. And we then shortly after we went for a holiday to Italy. So I bought the CD and we, we never really got past the sort of first episode. So, But what I can say very well is c'è una macchiata. No. Uh, is it c'è? You say you can say it very c'è, well. C'è. No, c'è una macchina. Uh-huh. So what I can say very well is c'è una macchina. That means there is a car. 
And all my and my children, all my children, my two children can say Che Una Machina very well as well. We've not really got too far past Che Una Machina, though. So it has limitations. Look, all I saw an Italian family wandering around London in in very accented. um, uh, Say, there is a car. There is a car. There is a car. It's better than nothing. It so happened that that was the sort of baseline of the CD. Right. We never really got past CD number one. Right. On the substantive point that Lara makes, about Europe. We did actually talk quite a bit about the 60th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Rome on our New Year episode and some of the achievements of the European Union. And there's actually an example of this this week because the the Conservative government tried to take credit for the banning of credit card surcharges and they put out a whole social media saying, we've banned surcharges on credit cards. It turned out it was a European Union uh, policy. So, Do you think successive governments have done that for ages and passed off stuff that the EU has mandated? As, as their own. Um, I'm not sure about the idea of doing that episode. Do you not think it's a bit, here's what you would have won? It is a little bit, here's yeah. what you would have won. I think it'd be reasonable to, reason to be miserable. Yeah. Reason. But here's what you would have won is the Jim Bowen thing, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Yes. Did, yeah. You, like, did you watch Bullseye as a child? Yeah, of course I did. Everybody, everybody watched everything Bullseye. back then because there were only two channels or three channels or whatever there were. Yeah. So, it, was so de- it was quite depressing Sunday afternoon viewing there, wasn't it? <laughs> they still show it on, um, on, on one of the channels, like Challenge TV or something. And um, do you remember there was an animated bull? Uh, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the way the way that they would go to commercials was with an animation of this bully walking into the toilet. <laughs> so the implication being, I'm going to go for a big shit, and we'll be back after the break. I think that's only. I think that is very particular to you, actually. What do you think the bull was doing in the toilet for five minutes? I don't remember the bull in the toilet. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> it was. Didn't he have a? Didn't Jim Bone have a rhyme? Um, uh, oh, keep so, out of the black and in the red. You get nothing in this game for two in a bed. That's right. I mean, if anybody is thinking of doing a reboot of Bullseye, I mean, I mean that was an audition. We just witnessed an audition there. That's true. Yeah. Maybe that could just be the bull anyway. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's keep going. This comes from Josie Holden-Wilby. He says, My flatmate and I have incorporated your podcast into our British politics course. I've referenced your podcast in my essay regarding who holds power in Britain when I spoke about taxing millionaires. I felt very proud to not only reference a podcast, but also type your names in my essay, photo attached. Similarly, my flatmate suggested that your podcast be added to the reading list of our module. Oh, which has that's been good. Done. We're getting on the university curriculum. Right. Um, she finished by saying, my mum is also a huge fan of the podcast. We have a review of it each week to discuss the latest topics. Uh, my mum, having listened to your podcast, now thinks you are her friends. Um, when her and I attended Prime Minister's Question Times last week, Ed, um, she suggested that we tweet you to see if we could go for a cup of tea. Oh, uh, I wish they had. She says, I had to remind her that A, uh, she doesn't know you, and B, you have a very busy job, and C, are Ed Miliband, former leader of the Labour Party. No, I would have definitely had the cup of tea. That's, that's... So you're saying that anybody who tweets you... <laughs> On a, on a day when you're at the House of Commons, you'll you'll stop what you're doing and go for a cup of tea with them, just to clarify. Let's move on. Uh, I, I think I was saying that I would have gone for a cup of tea with Josie, but, she, you know, right. sounds like a particular set of circumstances. <laughs> uh, but I think let's just sort of leave it at that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a very friendly person, as you know. Um, the next one comes from Ashley Ubrihayan. Now, I've probably murdered poor Ashley's name. So uh, forgive me for that. Uh, From Sydney, Australia. Dear Ed and Jeff, 
This is the furthest away. This is the furthest uh, sort of listener we've had, isn't it? As yeah, I mean, that'll all change uh, after this episode when I'm sure Jacinda, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Correct. will become a regular Good listener. Good point. As an avid listener to the Reasons to be Cheerful podcast, I became fascinated with class struggle following Ed's description of a family Christmas at the Miliband household. Just by, prior to Christmas, I became determined to obtain a cl- copy of Class Struggle at all costs. In what I've described, some friends and my partner as being afflicted by a case of class struggle fever. You see, it's the new Bitcoin. Like other listeners that you referred to on your podcast, I began trolling eBay and Amazon to obtain a copy and no doubt contributed to inflating the price of the game online. At fever pitch, I set an alarm to wake up at 1 a.m. on holiday in India. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was made you popular in order to try and win an eBay auction that saw the game reach the sum of 102 US dollars. Wow. 102.50, in fact. I was alerted to the irony of inflating the price of a game based on socialist principles by a friend, but was nonetheless undeterred. I'm sure Bertel Ullman, the guy who devised it, would be disgusted by these tactics. I think he would. In the end, I ended up losing the auction, but found a copy at a lower listing price. Please, he attached a photo. And then, most intriguingly, she says, regards, Ashley, if you fancy coming to Australia, I'm sure you can find a fitting venue. Oh, well, I think we should definitely do two dates in Australia, Sydney and Melbourne. We'll do the Opera House in Sydney. Definitely. And then we'll do Lassiter's in Melbourne. Ah, that's the home and a no, neighbours reference, isn't it? Um, definitely. Well, well done. And this comes from Martha Stringer, who says, "I just wanted to drop you a quick line. I've got two friends to listen to the podcast as well, and our friendship group that's conversation. Plus two. Yeah, we we only asked for a plus yeah, one. That's great. Over delivering exactly. Um, uh, and our friendship group conversations sound a lot more intellectual. So thanks. Um, it'd be even more intellectual if you incorporate the little chat we had about bullseye. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people are going to be clipping that bit yeah, of audio. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to suggest an idea for a future podcast. I'm a youth worker, and the single biggest issue facing the young people I work with is self-harm and mental health problems. The adult stroke parents connected with these young people feel like the world is ending. But for me, to see young people helping young people through the mental issues their contemporaries are facing is definitely a reason to be cheerful. Well, it's not forgetting there's a massive need to do something about it. Uh, just an idea, says Martha. Well, it's really important. And our live show, we can not yet reveal the guests, but we are going to be talking about the issue of mental health on our live show on January the 28th, Sunday, January 28th. Sorry, it is sold out. We will do future ones. We've had lots more invitations, not just to Australia, but Whitley Bay and Birmingham and Edinburgh and Cardiff and Norwich and Glasgow and Cheshire. Forgive us if we don't reply to every one of those uh, emails. We are taking your suggestions. We will be announcing more live dates uh, upcoming. And can I just say, often when people say guests to be confirmed, it's because they haven't managed to book any guests yet. <laughs> that's not that's not the case. We do know who it's going to be. Yeah, we just have to sort of – our people are talking to their people. Can you give us a clue? <laughs> <laughs> don't do your bullying. No. <laughs> Twice is enough. <laughs> Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcasts or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. So one of the things that we thought we'd do on the podcast in 2018 is interview people who make us more cheerful about the world, who've got interesting things to say about what they're doing. Last week, we had the Prime Minister of Iceland. This week, we've got another Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, who joins us now on the line. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, th- thank you so much for coming on. And you've been been in the job now three months, three, four months, is it? 
Yeah, on the 3rd of February, we'll hit 100 days in office. Uh-huh. I know that because I've set myself a deadline to have achieved a number of a number of substantial things. So uh, that's that's looming large for me. <laughs> and have you unpacked all your things? Because I know often when I move house, it can be six months or more before I take everything out of boxes. Did you, did you manage to do that? Is that part of your things to do in the first 100 days? Oh, it's hilarious. It's <laughs> hilarious that you say that because I'm actually sitting in my... Uh, local electorate office. Um, I, we won a by-election here in February of last year, and I'm still surrounded by a couple of boxes. Right. So I haven't even managed to move properly from the first time, I have to say. Uh, Jacinda, it's, it's Ed here. You, you and I, I think, met uh, about 10 years ago, um, around the time when you were working at the Cabinet Office. I was a minister of the, of the Cabinet Office at the um, at the time. I have to say it hasn't escaped by my notice that since then you've become prime minister and I haven't. So congratulations. <laughs> uh, um, but I, well, uh, we've always been rooting for the Labour Party. Oh well, thank um, you. Over in the UK, of course. Thank you. Uh, in taking a keen interest. Yeah. How do you how how do you look back on your time uh, working in the British civil service? Because it's quite an unusual thing for somebody who becomes the prime minister of another country to to do. Yes, and, and I guess that speaks to um, New Zealand's unique relationship um, uh, with um, with the UK. But I have to say, my my I still and I still have a number of um, amazing friendships from that time, and I tend to visit regularly. My sister's still um, still in um, in London. Uh, but apart from those personal relationships, one of my one of my take homes was was how lucky New Zealand is for how direct. Uh, our relationship between the members of the executive is. So, uh, you know, I would spend um, quite a bit of time, for instance, trying to resolve gnarly issues between departments and ministers um, that, from my experience having worked in New Zealand, I'd know that usually a a minister would simply, who would reside in the beehive, would simply walk downstairs and have a conversation with their ministerial colleague, whereas, of course, the structure of the way it works in the UK, that just doesn't happen in the same way. That's such an interesting point, isn't it? And And I should explain to our listeners that in New Zealand, and I think it's rather unusual and admired around the world, the ministers all sit in one place, so they don't mm-hmm. sit out sort of in their separate departments. They actually all sit, and, and it's called the beehive, is it? That's correct. That's correct. And it makes it makes for really direct relationships and engagement. You resolve things very quickly. Um, cabinet meetings are, are um, very unscripted um, events. You can't detect or, or, or determine which way a decision will go before it happens. Whereas in the UK, look, this is no criticism. It's just a product of, of size more than anything, probably. Um, it was uh, it was probably, you know, a bit slower um, and a bit harder, Certainly to, true. harder to sometimes resolve those issues. So I appreciate that about New Zealand. That's a really interesting point. Now, now on to your policy agenda. You, I think, in your election campaign called Capitalism a Blatant Failure Due to the Extent of Homelessness mm. in New Zealand. And this podcast is about ideas. How important is reforming the economy and the way and who it works for? How important is that to your premiership in New Zealand? Oh, look, in- incredibly important. And I think probably one of the things, again, that's a bit distinct for New Zealand um, and by virtue of our size is that where we see those failures, you know, rather than necessarily having an ideological debate around um, structural reform, we often just get on get on with change and intervention. And so some of the things that we're that we're doing in that space probably haven't grabbed as many headlines, but will have a significant impact. And it's really about us determining that, 
you know, often New Zealand is a recipient um, of the tremors of, you know, an economic financial crisis or, or something that happens in the international domain. We'll feel the ripple effects of that. But we do have some levers that allow ourselves to to weather the storm to um, protect our interests a bit better. And so some of the things that we're looking at are, for instance, you know, the way that we treat strategic assets in New Zealand. Yes, like many countries, we're in need of foreign direct investment. Um, it helps for me to grow. Um, but when we have uh, a housing crisis, um, when we have such an, o- an overheated housing market, where it just doesn't make sense for people to um, be ramping up uh, our our prices in New Zealand uh, by by virtue of overseas buyers who just have greater access to capital than New Zealanders, then we should do something about that, and and we have so that we can encourage greater investment in the productive economy, which is a problem here in New Zealand. And one of the areas you have intervened in is banning foreign ownership of. of of existing property i think tell us a bit about why Mm. that's happened how much of a fight it's been and how it's how it's going to work out do you think yeah well anyone who's visited um uh, new zealand will will be familiar with um our city of auckland our largest um city in new zealand we've reached a point now where the average home in auckland is is worth more than one, one million new zealand dollars and when you're looking at a you know a median income of roughly fifty nine thousand dollars per annum, you can see that relative to income that's that's just means of course we have housing um, that is unaffordable and causing huge huge stress on households and first home buyers. Now, as a labor party, housing we treat as a right, you know a decent, warm, dry home that's affordable isn't something we want to give up on. And home ownership's always been a bit of a part of our our psyche in New Zealand. We don't have a renting culture in the same way. It doesn't give you stability. And so it strips you of your ability to build community, to really um, build roots, and it means that your kids end up being transient, changing multiple schools. So it has a social effect. So for us, it's not just about ownership. Uh, And so part, there's many things that have caused this issue, but one of the issues, was, um, certainly we didn't have the data because it wasn't collected properly, but certainly anecdotally a suggestion that we did have more um, foreign ownership housing market. And our view was, look, unless someone um, demonstrates that their desire to stay in New Zealand and contribute, so unless they're a permanent resident or on track to being a permanent resident and tend to stay, um, uh, then we should really look at what benefit there is to having off people based offshore with no interest buying domestic residential housing here. So we've changed, uh, we're in the process of changing the screening, um, our Overseas Investment Act, to stop that from happening here in New Zealand, with the exception that if you want to buy land, build a house and sell it, that increases supply. So by all means, but if it's just about buying a home for capital gain, that doesn't benefit New Zealand. And so we're not interested in that. And you think New Zealand can remain a sort of relatively open country, even with this in place? Yes, that has been the challenge because um, at the same time, yes, we want to encourage investment in New Zealand. We just want it to be in the in the sick parts of the economy. That's a win-win for us. Uh, and so if we can encourage people to, instead of investing in residential property, um, which, you know, in some cases people purchase the home and, and um, let it sit empty 
yep. simply for the capital gain. Happens here a lot. Yeah, and, and, you know, that, you know, as a politician, you'll know that breaks your heart when exactly. you see the homelessness that you have. And look, it's not about saying we don't want um, foreign direct investment. It's about saying we want it in the right places. So trying to, to encourage that with with sticks and carrots. Um, uh, but at the same time, I, I understand that in the current international environment, we're still trying to send a message that we are an open, diverse country. You know, we want to double um, the number of refugees that we take in in New Zealand. Um, and that kind of messaging is equally important so as not to be seen to be closed to the world, but just to be acting in New Zealand's interest as well. Can I ask you about the coalition that you're in? Because I'm right in thinking that you're you're working with people who wouldn't necessarily be your political allies, the the populist right party, um, the New Zealand First. Is is that a difficult thing to wrangle? Is it like herding cats at all? Yeah, well, actually, they're, they're not a populist right party. I would describe them as centrist. Um, they've been in coalition with Labour before, New Zealand First from 2005 to 2008 under Helen Clark's government was in coalition and the current our current foreign minister and deputy prime minister was then um, foreign minister as well. Um, and uh, so we, we have taken different views on predominantly in the past um, the extent of immigration policy. But when it comes to issues like um, uh, foreign ownership of residential housing, when it comes to investing in regions, um, jobs, um, and trying to um, ensure that we have decent wages, there is real common ground there. In fact, in making his decision, ultimately New Zealand First decision over which party they would work with, um, in the speech in which the announcement was made, it was actually Winston Peters, the leader of that party, who really um, denounced what capitalism had, had done in New Zealand. You had no idea that was coming, or did you know it was coming, that he was about to make you no. Prime Minister? You didn't know? No. It was like a, it was no. like a, it was, for a politician, it was like a sort of night nightmare game show you don't quite know whether you're going to win or not <laughs> no it was it was uh, because that's happened before I right. knew there was a chance it could happen again but right. I didn't know until he Crumbs. I thought well look the phone hasn't rung so either either I'm the runner-up or the winner we just Crumbs. didn't know um but actually do you know I actually preferred otherwise it would have been a phone call and I would have known first you know, there was something about finding out with everyone right. that was um, that was actually quite good. So I have I had no problem with it. And, and talking of game shows, you famously said to Donald Trump, um, "At least nobody marched when I was inaugurated." Now I know you don't particularly want to talk about that, but but more seriously, how how do you, from your point of view, sort of think that we take on and defeat? The, the the so-called populist right-wing politics what, what what lessons do you do you think we should learn about how progressives can can defeat it yeah and and i you know of course i observe with everyone what's happening globally and, and new zealand is is probably in lots of ways quite quite different we haven't had that extreme um, uh, that extreme personality, um, speaking generally, the extreme personality um, that you sometimes see in, in Europe or, or the likes that have really um, particularly uh, taken, a, taken a xenophobic stance. We, we haven't really had any of that. But, yeah. but what, I have, what I have observed is that, of course, like any other nation, we are vulnerable to people's insecurities, particularly their financial insecurities, their fear about the future, their fear about job security, um, being channeled by politicians into a message of fear 
um, and a message of hate rather than a message of, of hope. And so it strikes me that the collective challenge for the for the progressive um, for progressive parties is to acknowledge where our systems have failed, to acknowledge that sometimes we've been a part of that, but that doesn't mean that we aren't um, we aren't seeing what's wrong and that we're not equipped to make changes that are needed. And and in that context of sort of answering the insecurities, you've sp- uh, personally taken on the child poverty brief in your government um mm. tell us why you did that and sort of what 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 the what's the kind of mission yeah I, that's probably one of been been one of my motivations um uh, throughout my political career i mean lots of you know lots of politicians uh, have something that that triggers them and and for me um whilst i've i wouldn't describe myself as an issues based politician this has been one particular thing that's really stuck with me uh and so I didn't want to have a portfolio uh, that, you know, was was light so I could do my prime ministerial duties, yeah. but felt like I was departing too much from some of those things that I'd really worked so hard on over over the past nine years. And so I I hung on to this this part of the agenda, and it was child poverty. What I really wanted to do was create create some infrastructure that means that future governments fundamentally change the way that we address child poverty. And when I say child poverty, ultimately it's about looking at the the adequacy of, of incomes and the effect they have on children. And because all of our child poverty measures are relative measures, ultimately it's about inequality. Uh, and so we're setting up some of the infrastructure we're setting up. We're putting in child poverty legislation like what the UK but has has done, but a bit of a combination with the UK and, and um, the scorecard that I think is used in Wales um, and saying we won't put in law the targets to reduce child poverty, but we will put in law a, required, a, set, a requirement to set them. So my hope is that future governments won't ever drop that requirement and we will forever be transparent about what we're doing. And also a requirement to set out a whole strategy for well-being around children. Uh, and I think this is where we're probably a bit different. We've also said that we have to report on our progress every single budget. So we want New Zealand to be a place that every budget, instead of just talking about GDP and you know, trade deficits, we talk about how children are faring. It sounds really And so important. we're putting that into our public. Yeah, and that will be part of our Public Finance Act. So that, that that's step one. But actually, our entire budget process, we're looking to change to a living standards framework, which is often being talked about internationally, but will be the first time probably it will be actually adopted. Um, uh, and we're looking to do that in 2019. In place of GDP as the, as the most important measure, you mean? Well, uh, or alongside GDP, I think fundamentally, yeah, I think fundamentally GDP's um, uh, will, will relative importance within that framework will probably diminish to a certain extent. Um, but it's it's about saying that that is simply not an adequate measure of the success of an economy if you can't measure the shared prosperity and the impact of that shared prosperity. And one other area where where you're also trying to set a long term direction for New Zealand and and very importantly is on climate change, where you've set yes. up a commission to look at New Zealand getting to zero emissions by 2050. Now. That that would be for those who think that sounds like a long way off. That is that is in line with 
um, the Paris mm. Climate Agreement and, and is more mm. ambitious than the Climate Change Act that even we put in the UK, which at the time was a pretty good thing in, in 2007-2008, where we've got 80% reductions yes. by 2050. Yes. So essentially, we're looking to try and make New Zealand clean, green and carbon neutral. Uh, and that, I mean, I've looked, I've looked at some of the progress you've been able to make in, in the UK, which is extraordinary, but the profile of our two countries is quite, quite different. Uh, for instance, you know, we already use a, a huge portion of our energy generation as renewables. We're looking to try and get to 100% renewable by 2035, and we're not far off that. So any gains we make in that space is actually not going to make a huge dent in our profile. Um, most, a majority of our emissions come from agriculture. Now, that's tough. <laughs> yes. So really, we have to get smarter. And uh, our goal is to to demonstrate that, that that culture we've always had of being, um, you know, innovative um, and um, being clever um, food producers, we want to enhance even, even further. And so that's the challenge that we have. And I'm excited by that challenge. I want to turn climate change into an opportunity for New Zealand Absolutely. rather than the perception of a cost. Mm. And am I right in thinking that you are the third woman to be Prime Minister of New Zealand? Correct. And uh, thinking about the letters you receive from um, uh, little girls, is that still a big deal to them? Or because you're number three, it's kind of, oh, it's, it's, it's normal now, it's what girls do? No, I, no, I still think it probably is. Um, maybe it's because there's the added difference of, 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 of my age. You're the youngest female leader in the world, correct? Yes, uh, yes, 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 I think that is correct. I know I'm, I'm certainly, <laughs> even with my party, at the time I was made leader, I was the youngest in the caucus, which I think speaks volumes about um, about how supportive my, my caucus has been. But yes. It's a serious question. Presumably, being somebody relatively younger as a world leader, as well as being a woman, does give you a particular perspective. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. You know, the treatment of women in some other spheres of politics and... Uh, never feel complacent in New Zealand, but do also feel relatively lucky. I'm the third. Others have carved a path. Yes, um, as with any field of work, you know, there's a bit of gendered language and a bit of sexism, but relative to what I see elsewhere, um, I feel also pretty lucky. Last question, Jacinda, which which is something that caught our eye before the end of last year. The, the the and Jeff, my co-presenter, thinks I'm a bit sort of obsessed with this. The New Zealand-wide secret Santa, <laughs> which you were part of. Reason to be obsessed with that. Yes, you, which you were part of. of. I think it's a great way to bring people together. It's wonderful, and it just you know what for me this just captures New Zealand. You know, uh, it's um we we are a country who really embraces the random act of kindness i really i really think that's always been my experience <laughs> anyway and that this is this is this is secret center to a to a t really so yeah i i i loved it i in fact somehow landed two gifts which i, I probably have to pay it forward for that <laughs> <laughs> and, and jacinda i saw that you were on a tv show with british comedian jimmy carr and you're trying to score an invitation to the yes. royal wedding <laughs> in jest in jest well i was just gonna say if you, if you can if you can find me somebody who can get hold of some flight of the concords tickets I'd, I'd see if i can find you someone who can get you on the guest list for the royal wedding <laughs> You can come and watch it at ours, Jacinda. It's a good trade-off. Yes, thanks. It's not a bad trade-off. Do you know what? 
even without that quid pro quo, we could probably arrange something um, with the with the old crew of Flight <laughs> of the Concords. New Zealand, New Zealand is half a degree of separation. Jacinda, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for your time and good luck over there. Well, I am a fan. I I'm want to, I want to vote for Jacinda. I feel aggrieved that I can't vote for her. I'm a total fan. I think her sort of positivity is what partly what comes through. Yeah. You know, never mind the policy, but she's got interesting policies too. But, you know, it's just she seems like she's a positive person. And the secret center as well. Yeah. It's like qu- quietly there at the other side of the I world, they're just, just getting on with it and doing all these great things. Do you think we've inched towards a sort of state visit? I, I, I mean, us so. going there, right? <laughs> well, I think so, since you, you offered uh, her the chance to come and sit exactly. in your house and watch the Royal Wedding on the TV, exactly. I think exactly. there's a state visit is the next step onwards Ex- from that. Exactly. But I thought the other thing that came through was that she's got this policy on home ownership. Uh, now, whether that's the right solution for us, I don't know. But, but what's clear is that she is finding a way of tackling a problem that people in London certainly would identify uh, with which is lots of overseas buyers buying up housing housing being sort of built to cater for overseas buyers um you know she's got long-term plans on child poverty on climate change so i thought it was really inspiring yeah definitely and now we've set the precedent two prime ministers in a row people are going to expect exactly. one every week well i think i think prime ministers will start demanding to come on the show <laughs> don't you think yeah Teresa, if you're listening do you think she's ever listened to a podcast i think she's heard of a podcast i think not really Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Bumper deluxe. Wasn't it just there was a, there was a lot in there. Absolutely. I mean, Chase away the January blues. I know. I mean, there was so much really. We could have serialised it. Completely. It could have Serial. Been, yes. Um, and, you know, what a revelation to find out that you were such a Bullseye fan. Indeed. Were you a, you a darts fan in general? Quite like darts. I was more preferred snooker. Yeah. But the, the the two very much go hand in hand, or I think they certainly did back back then. Yeah, I was I was more a snooker player than a darts player. We had a goldfish called Jockey Wilson. Really? Yeah. Jockey on the hockey. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Yeah. My dad was a big fan of John Lowe, the gentleman of darts. I quite like John Lowe, actually. There was a dignity to the man. Which who was the one with the funny sort of hand movement? Was that Jockey Wilson? I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not not maybe not the connoisseur that it turns out you were. Eric Bristow, the cheek. No, he had the funny thing. Oh, the dainty yeah, finger. Yeah, like it was a, a wine glass or something. Yeah, and and these 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 sports were so popular back in the day that they would have their own novelty songs. The darts players had one called One Hundred and Eighty. The snooker players had one called Snooker Loopy. Not snooker so Loopy, not so wee. Yeah, it was slightly not the snooker bullseye was slightly depressing Sunday telly though, wasn't it? It was like you're going back to school. I really, I never quite got to grips with Sundays, but you know, you're going back to school the next day. It's five. Is it was five o'clock on a yeah, Sunday? Yeah, I think so. There's nothing really else. Songs of praise on the other side. <laughs> you know, no offense, songs of praise listeners, but you know, it was sort of. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would never have guessed you found it depressing from the gusto with which you do your impersonation of Bendy That's Bully. True. That's true. Yeah. I think I might have watched it at university, maybe. <laughs> really? Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Those wild student years Exactly, exactly. Uh, we should thank our guests. We definitely should. Uh, thanks to Dr. Hannah Barham-Brown, junior doctor. Thanks to Anita Charlesworth. And thanks to Lord McPherson. And also thanks to Jacinda Arden. And thanks to Jacinda Arden for sparing the time and being so fantastic. So which Prime Minister will we shoot for next week then? What do you reckon? Maybe Justin Trudeau. 
Ooh, that's good. Maybe he's listening. Yeah, Justin. Yeah, if you're listening, tweet if you've us. Got connections. <laughs> yeah, connections to Justin. I'd like the guy who was security guard on the Holloway Road. You remember oh, that? Oh yes, guy? I remember you telling me this story. His name is President Barrow and uh, Adama Barrow. So anyway, maybe he's listening. Why has his life not been made into a film yet? It should definitely be. Definitely. Maybe you should direct it. I'd be up for it for the, for the right price. I've never directed anything before, but how hard can it be, I right? I could see you. I could see you. With a loud hailer shouting. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll uh, you'd like the chair anyway. Yes. <laughs> Are you going to do the other? Thank you. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and assistance and policy research from Alex Feisbrice and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our iDents and Seed, performed the music, and Emily Power designed our artwork. He's been Jim Byrne. He's been Bendy Bully. <laughs> and this is what you could have won. <laughs> and you don't get nothing for three in the bed. Three in the bed, two in the bed. Two in the bed. I don't know. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.